Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, just so good to be here again amongst my family and amongst the visitors that are here visiting with us. You're our honored guests, uh, especially my aunt over there. Hello, hello. Um, and I appreciate you all and appreciate that you've come here, hopefully with spiritual things in mind and, and to discuss the, the Word of God and to put it paramount and to put it in the center of our lives. And if you would turn with me in the book of James to chapter 5 and verse 16, that's where we'll be beginning the lesson in just a moment. James chapter 5 and verse 16 is where we'll be beginning. But before that, as I typically do, it might be getting a little predictable at this point, but nonetheless, I'd like to share with you guys a, a bit of a story from my own life. Hopefully that you could take that and relate it to your own, and, and then finally we can come back to the Scriptures and relate that to the Word of God. Now, again, I was not raised in the church. I was not raised really in any kind of spiritual or godly environment up to about age 12. Um, I didn't really have any kind of good positive influence in my life. I, I had a lot of struggles, and, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, and the household that I was in, I, I was not very comfortable and, and not happy, and, and it just seemed like there was no hope. And I was raised to believe in God and, and to be praying, and so in distress, kind of on the edge of disbelief, even believing in God any longer, I just sort of cried out to, to God, please deliver me from these circumstances. Deliver me from this wickedness and this sin and this darkness that you are so against and that I've heard so much about how you will crush and oppose and outshine. Please show me the way. Those were the things that I asked. And God did not respond right away to that prayer. Just a 12-year-old child, I was impudent, and I was impulsive, and I said, God hasn't responded to my prayer in a whole week. I'll just give up. There must not be a God. My aunt's sitting right there in the audience. She probably remembers several conversations that we would have about this very subject, where I would express, my life has been so hard. Why would a loving father allow so much to befall me? And... What I'd failed to see in that thinking was that he had already delivered me when I was physically delivered first. I was taken from the environment that I was in by my aunt, by my uncle. And it, that was, I believe, an answered prayer. I don't know exactly the machinations of how that occurred, how much God's providence played in that. But I found myself being adopted by a loving family that did treat me with so much love and so much concern and so much care. And eventually... Members of the church found their way into my life. Even when I was very young, I had a middle school teacher that is a member of the church that talked to me about God's existence. And then later, a martial arts coach that is a member of the church that talked to me about the, the proper order of the New Testament church and things like that and recommended Bible studies with certain individuals and slowly found my way to the truth of the New Testament regarding salvation. So now I'm standing before you as a preacher of the gospel. Asterisk in training. <laughs> and so... That just goes to show that God, I believe he does hear our prayers and he does answer them. And that, So if you'll read with me in James chapter 5 and in verse 16, James chapter 5 and in verse 16, we can read James chapter 5 and verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Other translations render it like this. 
The prayer of a righteous person avails much. Good old King James for you. Or maybe New King James. Or, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Or, pardon me, is powerful and effective. That's just the simple point of prayer has great power within it. And that word power has a lot of different understandings. And, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a simple, vital, fundamental truth about God's Word and extract the exact meaning of, well, what is the power in prayer? And where does that come from? And what, what is the great depth and value of prayer that we can obtain? You know, we've already prayed several times today in the assembly. And hopefully we've prayed more than that on our own and just, you know, for meals, for blessings, to stop and pray forgiveness for something we may have done wrong, where we might have erred or might have made an error. Pray for our families and pray for the people that we loved. And hopefully we've been engaged in prayer, not just this Sunday, but hopefully every day last week and the week before that and so on and so on. And so it's obvious we understand prayer has value, but let's let's break that down a bit. I, I want you to see... Something very, and this is a nuance, but I want you to see that when I say that the, there is power in prayer, and we're talking about the power of prayer, I don't, do not want you to get it twisted and think that I'm telling you that prayer makes you powerful. It does not. The power in prayer comes from the Lord. And that is what I would like to do. I want to show and allow us to deepen our appreciation and our understanding of God's power in responding to our prayers. God is our sovereign, and He allows us to approach His throne with our different requests and our supplications and our concerns and our worries and our fears and etc. and etc. on and on with anything. And so, that's just such a huge blessing that we can't pass it up. You imagine if we lived in like a more of a feudal society or imperialist society where we had a formal empire or sovereign man and what, what a privilege it would be for you to individually be able to approach the king with whatever concern was on your heart, with whatever praise that you had. And, and so, let, let's just dive right in. And I would like to look at some examples from the Old Testament first to kind of discuss that. First, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, and we're not going to read the passage in Second Chronicles chapter 6, but you can go ahead and be turning to chapter 7 because we will be reading some verses from there. Um, we visit Solomon as he's finished constructing the temple of the Lord with the help of others. And he wanted to dedicate the temple with a prayer. And in this prayer, it's about 30 verses long of just so much. I want to say about probably 80, 90% of the prayer is just primarily putting the focus and the emphasis on God and God's will and just reverencing Him and giving Him all glory and praise and just giving God the due respect that He deserves. And so Solomon prays this great, amazing prayer, and it would do you well to read it outside of services if you, if you have the time for that, and I'm assuming that you will. Um, and to me, God did not respond immediately to the prayer that I just talked about in my own life took some time. But with Solomon, the Lord did not have him waiting. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we can start reading in verse 1, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in verse 1, 
As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Solomon prayed to God in Second Chronicles chapter 6, earnestly, fervently, hallowing His name, and God responds. And that's the first thing that I want to talk about is the fact that God responds. And we're going to be breaking that down a little bit more later. When God hears a prayer, he gives us a response. Further, we look at Nehemiah in chapter 1. Nehemiah. You could be turning, go ahead and be turning to chapter 6 because I'm just going to be highlighting some things that were going on in chapter 1. And then we'll find our way to chapter 6. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is wrought with stress, knowing that he's about to undertake a great mission in rebuilding the walls of the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And knowing this, he approaches the most powerful man in the land at the time, the Medo-Persian king Xerxes, to request permission to rebuild those walls. Because if you don't have walls, you don't have a city in this time. And so they must be rebuilt. So then, he prays to the Lord. On this subject. And he again shows so much reverence. And so much trust. And dependence on the Lord. That the Lord is going to give him the things that he needs. To accomplish the mission that is set before him. He trusts in God's provision. And then we look in chapter 6. And then starting in verse 15 and down to verse 16. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month Elul. In 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And so look, Nehemiah prays to God in Nehemiah chapter 1. Down in chapter 6, God had provided everything that Nehemiah needed. Everything that he needed to rebuild those city walls can be accredited to God. And so then, finally, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, the story of Manasseh, who was just an extremely wicked, just idolatrous monster of a king, comparable to the worst of the worst. Man, I mean, this guy was a plague to the people of God and was just poisoning them all. Terrible influence. But, even though he was so wicked that he would sacrifice his own children, He found himself in a position where he was humbled and he was bound in hooks by the Assyrians. And he too needed to repent. And he knew this. And since so we look in verse 13 of that passage in 2 Chronicles 33. In verse 13, he prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty. And heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh prayed to God in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and then in verse 13, he forgave him. So what can we conclude from passages like this? What can we conclude from passages like this? Simply this. God is so strong, God is so mighty, God is so powerful, that he holds everything in the entire universe in order and in place. And he originated it all, And in the end, he's going to make all things new. 
He has that kind of power. He breathed life into every single person in this congregation. And knowing that, we, we know that we have the avenue to reach a being of such immense power. And that if we do that, that he's going to hear us and he's going to render a response. Whether we like that response or not is up to us. But we know too that he's going to provide for us. And that he, the being who, who gives all things that are good, is going to give us the provision that we need. And finally, we know that the king, that our sovereign, is going to forgive our wrongdoings where we slip and where we fall short. And that, that is awesome. That power is nothing short of awesome. The ability to have that avenue of prayer to reach God and to speak with him. And so, no one knew this better than Jesus the Christ. His model prayer that he prayed in Matthew chapter 6. And starting in verse 5, he's kind of preaching. Um, but then he gives the actual prayer in verse 9. But in the Sermon in the, on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 5 through 13, Jesus is going to teach us some very critical things about prayer and about the power and the value of prayer. All these kind of vital, fundamental principles that I set forth already using those Old Testament examples are going to be borne out as well in Jesus' model prayer. We're going to kind of be working through this text and looking together, so you can kind of bookmark that. We might be jumping around a little bit, but make sure that you have your thumb or your Bible ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Matthew chapter 6. Before he goes into the actual prayer, though, Jesus kind of gives us some preliminary notes, some caveats of... Okay, you're going to be praying, but first let's talk about what not to do. How to not just utterly mess it up. And so in verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So first and foremost, there's going to be some folks who they pray for the wrong reasons. They want to be seen of men. They are praying so that they hope that, you know, let's say we're in the casa and it's like, oh, no, me, pick me. I want to, I want to do the prayer. And dear God, and you just want the whole casa to know there's some Christians over here. And don't let that guy pray. Quiet me down if I am. I just have a loud voice. It just carries. I'm not being like a, a verse five person here. Okay. Um, so verse six, but when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, I don't think that this here is meant exactly literally that you actually need to go find your personal living quarters when it's time to pray and close the door and if someone comes in, you better stop because now the secret's blown and your cover's blown and you're in here praying. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and there are plenty of examples of apostles praying in the presence of other folks and things like that in the New Testament, so that cannot be the case. But I do think that this is a principle that Jesus is setting forth here, basically, of the intimacy of a prayer, that it's not meant to be about how your prayer's going with brother or sister so-and-so over here, or what so-and-so thinks about the prayer between you and God. It's exactly that. It's between you and God, and it's very intimate. So then there in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay, so this is very key and very critical, especially for us, you know, church-going folk, where we hear a lot of these colloquial phrases in prayer that we cannot allow to be just worn out. 
Dear Heavenly Father. We can't just let that just roll off our tongue without thinking about who we're addressing. You know, please grant us this or please do that. We can't do that unless we have force and belief behind what we're saying. It's not rote or automatic or something that's just going to be scripted. It's deliberate. And I, I really appreciate what Jesus says that down in verse 8 and kind of the, the back half of the verse. It says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I mean, yeah, God already knows what you need. So prayer for me is more about trusting in God and putting my dependence in God for those things that I need. And that's what I think that the, the purpose of, of this teaching that Jesus is giving out here is he's saying you need to, when you're asking God for things, he already knows that you need it, of course, but you're depending on him more. Prayer is not about like, what can I receive? And when I, even when I'm asking to receive things, it's still not about what I can receive. It's about trusting and giving myself to God and commending myself into his care and love. That, that's what makes a prayer powerful, is that I'm letting myself go. I'm trusting God to guide my steps. And I'm not trusting my own wisdom and not leaning on my own understanding, as the Proverbs writer wrote. Okay, so now we continue on to the actual prayer itself, starting in verse 9. Jesus said, in verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. First things first, when we read this, Our Father in heaven, God is our heavenly Father. He is a loving Father, and He is a stern Father, and He wants the best for us, and He wants to see us grow into what we need to become. And knowing that, you know, he's, he's sort of a father figure, we must acknowledge that relationship to God, that he is our father. And we must respect and honor that relationship of authority and give the due reverence to God that he deserves as our heavenly father. First and foremost, in any prayer, we must respect God's authority. And we must also consequently know that if he is our heavenly father and if we do love him and we do honor him and respect him as a father then our supplications and praise and all the things that we're praying for he will hear those things as we align ourselves with his will he will hear the things that we're praying to him because that's what a father does they pay attention to their child if i mean you you can't take your kids to the grocery store without them running around you got to just pick them up i see it happen all the time i don't have my own but you know what I mean? You, you, you know, what do you guys think of a, a parent if they just kind of, like you walk in the Walmart and you're like, okay, go get your toys or whatever, we'll reconvene here later. No, like that doesn't happen until they reach a certain age where they can be sort of independent and maybe like fight off an attacker or something like that. <laughs> okay, so if we do and we know who God is, we know that any good father will listen and care and cry, to the cry of his children. The Lord said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 33, Call to me and I will answer you. And we should expect the same thing of God when we pray. Call to him and he will answer. Read with me in 1 John in chapter 5. 1 John in chapter 5. And then verse, starting in verse 14. This is John's first epistle here. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. John chapter 5, starting in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. When we pray to God, 
We should do that in a confident manner. Not in of ourselves, but in the confidence in who God is. And, and just the magnitude and just the things we talked about earlier in, the, in this lesson. The power of God. That He is sovereign over all things and that He's, he's listening right now to us. To our requests. And we know that. And so, in summary of, of, of just verse 9 and 10, God's our Father. We should hallow His name. We should align our wills with Him. And we should pray to Him expecting that He'll treat us as a father treats children. We should know that He's going to respond to us. In due time, I had to learn that lesson. He may not respond right when we want. And He may not respond how we want. God might He might say, not yet. He might just flat out say, No. But he may say yes. And so we must keep that in mind. And so knowing that we should know to ask God as our Heavenly Father um, for things in prayer, Jesus demonstrates in verse 11 that our Father is basically going to take care of us. Give us this day our daily bread in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 6. So Jesus is divine, but while he was on earth, he was also a man, and he ate. And so Jesus knew quite well the sensation of hunger. You remember he, he engaged in fasting in the desert and was hung upon the cross without any food and, and things of that nature where he did suffer and he did experience great hunger. And so he knew that, that we're going to experience that. And he told us in advance that we should pray for God's provision and depend upon him for things like our physical needs and our material needs and cares of the world. And again, I just want to point out, I, I don't think that Jesus praying this, give us this day our daily bread, was coming from a place of, give me. Give me this, give me it. I want it. I don't think that was the attitude here. I, th- I think that Jesus was commending himself and giving dependence to God and trusting in God, believing that he will deliver to him the things that he would need. So, when we give our trust to God, let's, let's already be flipping over to um, verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, actually. Just, just a quick stop over here. When we do this, when we believe that God really is going to provide for us, and when we depend on Him for that, and we commend ourselves to Him, well then, that destroys worry, and that destroys anxiety, and that takes away our fears the more and more we do it. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, down to verse 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What will you eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. 
And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God holds all creation together. God is the outpouring of all blessings. He shaped the universe. He formed it. And He maintains it to this day. My question is, knowing this, that God holds together all of the things, everything that we could perceive and more, that He could not hold you together, that He could not provide for you, if you'll trust in Him and depend on Him. And so... Again, I think this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. I do not think this is about the bread. I think that this is about God. And I think that this is about trusting in God and giving yourself to God in that way and not about receiving bread. So finally, we trust in God to provide our physical needs, but we can also be sure that God's going to provide what we're going to need spiritually. We move on, verse 12 and 13. Jesus will show us that here. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. Finally, Jesus tells us that as the people of God, that we should go to Him begging and pleading for mercy, for the forgiveness of our different debts that we may have, for the wrongdoings that we've done. And why would He say this? Well, I'll be frank. Because I'm not perfect. There's not a perfect soul in here. And knowing that, that just, even just coming out of the baptistry, you're still subject to temptations. You're still subject to trials. Despite all the zeal in the world, you still will be. And even at the end of your days, when things are becoming quieter and things are slowing down, there's still going to be temptations there. That Jesus instructs us that no matter what, as long as we have breath in our body and sound mind, that we can go to God in prayer and that we can seek forgiveness for our wrongdoings. So for children of God, that's the avenue of which we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Again, in 1 John, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, if you would. 1 John chapter 1 and then in verse 8. For the child of God, this is how we receive the forgiveness of our sins if we err. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I'm willing to say, I've done wrong, and that is not correct, and I want to change, and I want to do better, well then God has opened up that avenue of request for reconciliation with Him and for mercy, that we could obtain that as children of God. And Jesus, he doesn't want us to pray this kind of weak, like, oh, I'm sorry, bro, my bad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Like you bump somebody in the movie theater type apology, like, oh, sorry, dude. No, that, is, that will not cut it whatsoever. And that's emphasized here where he says, forgive us, first and foremost, in verse 12. But then in verse 13, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If I'm praying to repent to God for the forgiveness of my sins as a child of God and I do not intend to correct 
and to go away from the temptation and to allow God to lead me where He wants to lead me, which is away from the darkness and into the light, and I don't want to be delivered from evil, well, then I'm not apologizing with any sort of integrity. So Jesus, I believe, adds this so that we can see this is kind of the natural progression. Once you're forgiven, take that and go and change and be better. So, Jesus wants us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Christ knows that God is capable of forgiving and delivering and doing all those amazing things that He can do through the avenue of us reaching Him in prayer for us and act in our lives according to the things that we'll pray to Him and request of Him. He knows that. Just as the wicked king Manasseh, who was an idolater, who basically wrecked everything in in the nation of God and sacrificed his own children to a pagan god Molech, even he could receive the forgiveness of sins. And so I just want us all to emphasize the importance of when we go to God in prayer and we are a Christian, that we should always, always, always seek the forgiveness of sins and seek to be to grow and to become stronger and stronger in the faith that God supplies to us through his holy word. And if you would, since we've just studied prayer, you guys can see where I'm going with this. I would like if we would all bow and pray together. And I would appreciate that very much. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father and Lord, we come to you in absolute submission and humility, knowing that you are such a great and massive God, more than we can comprehend, that your beauty is beyond all of our human comprehensions and understandings, and that, that you're perfectly divine and and awesome and great, and that you're the giver of all things that are good, and you're the light, and you're our Savior, and you fight for us, and you've given so much more than we have. And we recognize that, and we see the way that you have poured out your love in our lives, and we're so thankful for that, and thankful for all the things that you've given us, Lord. We pray that you'll continue to bless this congregation and the work that we do. We pray that each and every one of us will continue to ratchet up our growth more and more and to grow stronger and stronger and to go out and and preach the word and teach the word and evangelize and, and do things in our lives that shows people the love of Christ and that will expose people to true New Testament Christianity and its integrity and that will, in the areas that we've fallen short and the things that we've we've done wrong and the things that we just didn't do in the inaction of our lives where we just hadn't taken the right course of action, Lord, and we haven't lived up to the things that you've requested of us and that you've commanded of us, Lord. We pray that we'll seek you ever more and more, and we know that if we seek your kingdom first, that that all the things that we need will be provided to us, and we trust in you for that, and we trust in you wholly with all of our being, and we offer ourselves up as sacrifices, and we just pray that this congregation will continue to grow, and not just in number, but in spirituality, and just deepen, and and be lifted up and be edified. And, I, and we pray that this lesson will be applied and that the prayers of the saints will increase and increase in fervency and increase in number and increase in, in just more and more and just give great benefits that we know that you provide. We're so thankful for you and so thankful for Jesus who walked on this earth and gave his life on the cross and that he was delivered as a sin offering for us in essence and that he died on the cross so that we could have the forgiveness of sins through his blood. He purchased a a church to which we can belong that will make us 
righteous and that he will lift up to heaven on the end, end of days. And we're so thankful for that. And we hasten his return and, and we're so thankful for Jesus the Christ and thankful for you and thankful for the spirit that has delivered the word to us. And we pray all these things through Jesus who gave his life for us. Amen. Thank you for that. And finally, as I just said, for a Christian, prayer is the way that we seek the forgiveness of sins. Prayers to God are so very powerful. And I hope that I've shown that. I hope that I've shown that God will hear our prayers. And that we should have that confidence that He will. And that He will give a response, whether or not we like the response or not, He will deliver that response. And I hope that I've shown that God will provide the things that we need. And we ought not worry and scramble and compromise our faith to make those things happen. We must believe that God will provide. And we must pray for that provision to render ourselves dependent on God. And finally, I hope I've shown that for a Christian, we can always, always, always repent. We can always confess our sin to God. We can always look internally and humble ourselves and have the courage to realize that there is so much great power in God and in the forgiveness of sins that He offers to us if we seek after Him. But, I must say this, if you are not a Christian, you cannot pray in order to seek the forgiveness of sins. That is not how God will render your forgiveness. God has asked to us, commanded of us, that we must become His children and enter His household in order to have that father-to-child relationship. And so how must we do that? We must believe and we must have faith in Him. We must acknowledge God's existence. The God of the Bible, the God of the New Testament, that has done so much for us and has given us everything. We must be willing to confess faith in Jesus the Christ. We must repent of our sins or perish. It means we must completely turn away from darkness and into the light. And finally, we must be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, as in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, so that we can receive the salvation that God provides to us through His Word and through His divine providence to give us just these amazing scriptures and to deliver to us all the prophets, all the patriarchs, and and in culmination of all that, Jesus the Christ. And so, we now stand ready to assist anyone that would need to come forward and repent of their sin, brother or sister, if you haven't been living properly. You can pray silently alone with yourself, or we can pray with you to help you correct the things that are wrong in your life. And we can encourage you to do what's right and do everything that we can to lift you up. And we can definitely, definitely be praying for you. But, if you have not obeyed the gospel, and you are not a Christian, you can pray till you're blue in the face for the forgiveness of sins, but you will not receive it. There's no passage in the New Testament that tells you that you can be saved through a prayer. You can only be saved, you can only become a child of God through obedience to Him and obedient faith through the waters of baptism. We stand ready to assist you. All things are ready as we stand and as we sing.